So this morning, we're talking about infectious faith, which is uh, probably not the best title that I could have come up with uh, post-COVID, but it's what I went with and realized this morning, I probably should have gone with like incandescent faith or like attractive faith, but nevertheless, we're talking about a faith that is spread like germs through the world in the positivest of ways, the best way possible. Um, is exactly what we're talking about. Um, in fact, there's, there's probably one question that you should be asking throughout this whole sermon and as we leave here today, and the question is this. Um, if you were the only Jesus that someone ever met in their life, would they want to be a Jesus follower? We could probably pray right now close and and walk out the door if you can answer that question. If you were the only Jesus that someone ever meets in this life, would they want to be a Jesus follower? Um, In the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 5, we had our New Testament reading this morning, and it's one that most of us know if you grew up in the church, it's a, it's a pretty common one. I'm going to read it again for us here. Uh, Jesus uh, says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And here you can even like, you know, just use your imagination and, and you are that city that's up on that hill and it's lit up, right? And, and it can't be hidden. It's, it's clear as day what this is. And almost certainly what Jesus has in mind here is the city of Jerusalem, right? But you can imagine any city and it's up there on that hill and the people who are on the outside are, are looking and they say... I want to go there. I want to be part of that. I want whatever they've got. That looks, that, that looks attractive to me. And Jesus says, a city on that hill, your faith, your light that you're shining out, it should be like this, and it cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp, or nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, they put it on a stand, right? And it gives light to the whole house. Now, I don't know about the lighting in your house. <laughs> uh, I actually just changed the bulbs in my kids' fans. Um, this is an aside. This has nothing to do with uh, Jesus. But um, whoever created the bulb uh, that requires a certain kind of light, um, there's probably a special place in purgatory for this person uh, because... Uh, we've been flickering for uh, years, and now I finally got the right bulb. So I changed these out, and the point of the bulb is not to flicker and to create some uh, undue fears for my seven-year-old son, who's creeped out by a flickering light. Uh, The point is to light the room up, right? This is what the light bulb is for. Or in Jesus' day and age, what that candle is. You light that candle or that, that oil lamp or whatever it is that's in the house, and you're glowing the house up. You don't put a bowl over it. You don't hide it. It's meant to shine, right? And Jesus is saying, well, so the same for you, right? That, that thing that Jesus has done for you, 
the way in which he's lit up your life, you don't cover it up. You don't hide it. You don't put a bowl over it. You let it shine. And it should be attractive. Dare I say, infectious. Jesus continues, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus is helpfully uh, tying our message this week with last week's livable faith, right? Remember last week we talked about a living faith in which uh, we are not just uh, some sort of um, mind that is detached from a faith that's alive and doing things, but James encourages us to be people of faith who actually get out into the world and we make a difference, and it seems Jesus is saying much the same thing, that, that when we live lives that are shining before others, people are looking on and they're seeing what? They're seeing your good works. They're seeing something in what you do. And then interestingly, this doesn't cause them to say, I want to be like so-and-so, Dale. We'll pick on Dale for a second here. I don't, Dale is, is doing great work with the personnel committee, and I want to be like Dale, right? <laughs> Instead, they look and they see Dale's good work, and they, they point upward, right? And somehow the work that we do points not to ourselves, but it points to the Father in heaven And because of our good work, they give glory to the Father in heaven. This morning, um, I want to tell you something that you already know. Attractive people attract people. (laughs) Attractive people, and I don't mean physically attractive people, maybe that too, but, but the people who like light up a room when they walk into it, they... There's something magnetic about these kinds of people. Um, I was listening to a podcast <clears throat> that I'm ashamed to name, and it's, it was two famous people talking to one another, and they were joking with one another about other famous people that they've met in life, and how some of them, when you're in their presence, uh, you are just, uh, you're, you're lit up, and you're, you're, um, uh, you feel like you're the most important person in the world, when you're in their presence, they named Tom Hanks as an example of this. And, and when you meet Tom Hanks, uh, you just feel special because Tom Hanks apparently uh, like really does genuinely care about you, the individual. And then they said, well, and then there's other people you meet, uh, famous people. Uh, and when you meet them, you walk away and you feel like lesser. You feel like a, a smaller person, right? And, and these are two different kinds of people that you can meet in life, right? And uh, the same is true uh, of this other book that I read a, a while ago, a few months ago, a book by a guy named David Brooks. And this book is called How to Know a Person. And in it, he tells a number of stories. The one that caught me was a story about Waco, Texas. Um, and so he, he describes this interaction that he has in Waco, Texas while he's visiting and he's in a diner with, uh, with a woman uh, whose name is LaRue Dorsey. And she's like 93 years old. 
and she is a, <laughs> a strict disciplinarian. She's a, she was a teacher her whole life, and, uh, and Brooks is in this diner with her, interviewing her about teaching, and he's just trying, he's trying to warm her up, and, and she just won't even crack a smile. Uh, she, she is stoic, and she's maybe even a little angry inside, and, and it seems she's uh, perhaps a little bitter. Uh, and, and she even says at one point, um, I show my love to my students by disciplining them. <laughs> and he says, oh, oh, oh yeah. Uh, well, in walks a guy named um, uh, Jimmy Durrell. Jimmy Durrell uh, is a pastor in Waco uh, who's like 60 years old, and he's a big, um, like, teddy bear kind of guy. And he's a unique uh, gentleman because he, uh, the church that he pastors is one that was actually just a couple blocks from where Kendall and I used to live. Uh, it's called Church Under the Bridge. And it was literally a church under a bridge, under I-35, which runs through the heart of Waco. And every Sunday, he, he gets under uh, this bridge because he had a problem that most churches uh, don't try to solve. His problem that he d- is, is that he didn't have enough homeless people in his congregation. <laughs> and, uh, and so he wanted to solve this problem. He wanted to be around more homeless people. And so he, uh, he said he was going to start a church under the bridge where they were already gathering and now gathers hundreds of people every Sunday under a bridge, uh, and they have church with you know, dozens of homeless people. And he's just one of these really interesting people in life who does amazing work for the kingdom, and he has this clear heart for the homeless. Well, Jimmy Durrell walks into the diner <clears throat> where this uh, New York Times uh, uh, columnist, David Brooks, is interviewing this 93-year-old curmudgeon, um, and, and the man walks across the diner uh, to the 93-year-old, and she lights up, and everything in her changes, and he takes her by the shoulder and shakes her more than someone should shake a 93-year-old, <laughs> and he says, uh, LaRue, I love you. You are an amazing person. And she is just beaming from ear to ear with a smile, right? And so David Brooks uses this as an example of a person who is, dare I say, infectious, (laughs) who has a way about him that lights up, not himself, right? But lights up this other person in the room. And it's likely that this other person does not point to Dorel and say, oh, that guy's awesome. They likely say, oh, he makes me come alive. And, and perhaps even in the best way, it makes them realize, oh, there is a God in heaven who loves me. And I want to give glory to my creator. An infectious faith, faith is one that uh, indeed has all of the fruit of the Spirit in it, as, as Paul reminds us, right? So things like love and joy and peace and patience. These are people in our world when we meet them and they truly embody all of these characteristics. You want to be with this person. You want to be around them because they light up a room, yes, but often they light you up. There's another story in the same book um, that bears repeating. 
It's a woman named Jenny Jerome, which is uh, Winston Churchill's mother. And she uh, apparently attends a dinner in London, you know, a century ago, uh, where she's seated next to a guy named William Gladstone. Perhaps you know him, the Prime Minister of England back then. And after dinner, she thought that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England due to his impressive conversation skills. However, a few weeks later, she found herself at another dinner next to Gladstone's great political rival, Benjamin Disraeli. This time, she left feeling like she was the cleverest person in all of England, a testament to Disraeli's ability to engage and elevate those he was with. My guess is when most of us enter a conversation, we're more like the Gladstone, who is there trying to wait to get a few words in and, and show the person how smart we are, uh, or what a great conversationalist we are, or we're, we're waiting to, to show that moment where we can shine. I'm certainly guilty of this myself. And what I think Jesus is teaching us, frankly, if we're going to be a light on a hill, if we are going to light other people up, is to show up in a way more like Disraeli, who makes other people feel seen and valued and, and loved and, and understood. And so that they walk away thinking, I enjoyed being with that person because he made me feel like a better version of myself. Or she made me feel seen and, and understood and loved. Isaiah 60, our passage from the Old Testament this morning, uh, is one that I quite like as well. I've actually used this a, a number of times um, throughout the years. And uh, the, the part, uh, so it starts a little dark, and then it gets light. Uh, and so just to read it, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has uh, risen upon you. Behold, darkness is, is covering the earth, and thick darkness is all over the people. But the Lord will arise, and his glory will be seen upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And then what happens? Well, the nations, which is the, all those non-Jews out there, right, in, in this day and age, all those non-Israelites, those people who have nothing to do with Yahweh, they see this light in Jerusalem and, and on the hill. And what do they do? Well, they come to your light. And the kings come to the brightness of your rising. There are actually quite a few of these kinds of passages in your Old Testament and even in your New Testament at the end of Revelation where uh, the notion that uh, the, this city on a hill that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 5 is, is actually an echo of things that are uh, anticipated in, in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, it's here. The Holy Spirit is here now, and it can be in you, and it's supposed to go out of you into the world that's around you, and it's supposed to light everything up. I think we see it in a couple places in the New Testament. I would point you to Jesus' ministry himself, and I would point you to the early church. Uh, Jesus' ministry, uh, of course, is, is one that includes uh, lots of crowds, right? 
Jesus is, is routinely just surrounded by people. There is something about him that is indeed magnetic, dare I say, infectious. There's something that he's got that, that people want to be with. They want to be around him. And so the Jesus of the first century, you know, he was able to attract people, and he had a faith, and I do think it was a faith, uh, in which he shone and people came to him. This is a good point to, to remind you of the question you're supposed to be wrestling with throughout this sermon and beyond, is if you were the only Jesus someone ever met, would people be gathering around you in crowds like they were the Jesus of the first century? But it's not just Jesus, of course, it's, it is the early church too. So if you like turn to the book of Acts uh, in chapter 2 and, and then beyond, what starts to happen at a very early stage is the church sees explosive growth from the outset. It sees um, growth that I would love to see here at Southern Baptist Church, right? Where, where people are just flocking to them. And there's something different. It is worth asking, like, what do they have? What was going on in Jesus? What was going on in that early church? I've pulled out a few things and um, worth just kind of naming. I could probably name others. At one level, you could say that people are, are coming to Jesus or, or coming to that early church um, simply to meet needs. Right? This is uh, like Maslow's hierarchy here. Usually the people who are coming are people who need something, whether it's a blind man needing to see again, right? Maybe it's 4,000 people who are hungry and they need food, and Jesus gives that. Or in the, the early church, that if, if you don't know, what, what is very clear at the end of Acts 2 and the end of Acts 4 is, is all of these people, are, they're like selling their possessions and then they all have this in common. Well, <clears throat> you can imagine if you've got nothing in life, to sell, and you show up in that community, and they're meeting needs, and it says very clearly, no one among them had need. Well, if, if you had lots of needs in life, and now suddenly you're, you're part of a community where you have no needs, and all the needs are taken care of, well, that's a powerful way to grow a church, right? At a second level, and perhaps deeper yet, because frankly, once the need gets met, let's say Bartimaeus is, is blind and, and then he, his, his sight is restored. I actually preached a sermon a number of years ago now uh, and one of the questions was, well, what happens to Bartimaeus like, I don't know, 15 years after his sight has been restored? Does he still have that fresh, like, oh my goodness, I love Jesus sort of faith because that miracle has happened? If you were to wrestle with that question, the answer is probably not quite the same way. No doubt that faith uh, is still there and it's still present. But I certainly know people in life who have had miracles happen to them, only then to later down the road say, I don't know, I, I'm just not so sure anymore. So once that need's gone, or been met, what keeps them? Why does the church keep growing? 
And I, th I think the second answer I would offer to you is that it became a place of belonging. And so that people who were with Jesus in, in these crowds, they felt like they belonged somewhere. That there was like a home. And even the early church starts talking in that way, right? They talk about brothers and sisters who are not your brother or sister. And there's a sense of belonging. And so the early church, as they're, they're beginning to grow in Acts 2 and beyond, well, what's happening? There's this group of people where suddenly, especially this is true of the outsiders. You know, you think of your leper, who is often a leper colony, and now suddenly is welcomed inside of a group, and they have a place to belong. This is a deep human need that the church is meeting, a place to belong. The third thing I'd point to is um, connected to belonging, <clears throat> is that I truly believe that Jesus loved people for who they were and not like what they could give him or something like that. And he looked at them and he loved Dale because Dale was Dale. Not because Dale was trying to be anybody else. And he loved Eric for Eric. I don't know if you've had that experience in life. I sure hope you have. I hope you have this, these kinds of friends in your life. We all need them. Where you could really make some mistakes. <clears throat> And you have to go to this friend and you have to confess to them, hey, I did this thing and it, I'm so sorry. And then they forgive. And then they look at you and they say, I love you. I still love you. Because I'm not trying to create some other person here who's perfect and shiny and happy. I love you for who you are. <clears throat> Number four, um, I do think they, um, the early church, that is, created a, a, an inclusive community. An inclusive community. Somehow, the early church managed to pull together both ends of the, the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, as much as I mentioned uh, the poor and the needy who were part of that group, it's also true that inside that group were the benefactors, right? The, uh, the, the folks who sold their property to give to the whole of it. And so what we have in the early church is actually a mix of socioeconomic status, but it wasn't just the money. It, it was also, especially in this day and age, you, you know, if, if, if you're Jewish, you, you don't really associate with those who are non-Jewish. And yet this is precisely what the church does. They, they begin to pull in people who, who may not fit exactly. I actually think this is what um, Jimmy Durrell is trying to do with the homeless. He's trying to pull a group of people into a church setting who may not feel like they belong. And he's telling them, you too are included. You belong here. You are part of our community. And then uh, the, the last and the, the fifth thing I'd say is that this uh, early church, as they grew and as they uh, attracted other people, I think they did so uh, because they were a serving community. 
Jesus certainly uh, demonstrated this at the personal level. He would, he would serve others, right? And, and he would teach us to serve one another. And by doing so, it, it turns out that it, it actually makes us, the individual, uh, bigger. And it gives us a sense of purpose. And if you've been part of service projects, and if you're somebody who serves on a regular basis, and this is a great day to have the scouts with us because this is a large part of what they do is service, well, then you know there is inherent value for the person doing the serving. But then there's this double benefit because you're serving other people and you are bringing them into what it is that you do and who you love and how you love and your faith isn't just some sort of heady topic. It's, it, it's, a, it's a living faith. It's an active faith. It's a faith that does. And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, that's the kind of faith that brings glory to God. And frankly, it is an infectious faith as well. I was on a, a phone call this week uh, with a group called Outreach.com. Um, uh, we, we've got a, a strategic plan we're still trying to work on here. Uh, and part of the plan is to be an inviting church, to be a neighboring church. And, and this, um, this group, Outreach.com, is, is perhaps going to help us with like, some mailers and such. But, so as I'm on this phone call with them, uh, it felt like they were like reading that strategic plan. I was like, this is kind of wild. Uh, and, and one of the things that they said just over and over, they said, if you want to grow as a church, I'm passing this information to each of you. If you want to grow as a church, you've got to be an inviting church. You've got to be willing to tap your neighbor and say, hey, you should come to church with me. The stat that's out there is that like 80% of people would say yes to an invitation to come to church. That sounds high to me, but I don't know. Have you tried it? Where would you put that number? So if we are going to grow as a congregation, I do think we need to become an inviting church. <clears throat> if every family in our congregation brought one more family over this coming year, what would happen? Simple math, right? You would double. Our church would double. If every family brought two new families over the course of a year, what would happen? You would, you would triple, right? Um, I've named too many names, but there's, a, there's one family in our church who is so good at knocking on doors and saying, hey, you should join us for this thing. And they bring people very regularly. And I think it's wonderful. I've noticed our youth group starting to do this as well. And youth, I want to commend you and say, I think it's awesome that you bring your friends to youth group. Keep doing kingdom work. Keep having this kind of infectious faith. And I would encourage all of us 
to reach out. We have, we have intentional opportunities for this in our church. We had a Sky Zone event last week uh, in which it's a great opportunity. Like at the, the no, there, there's no barrier to entry. It's not even in a church at that point. You're just going to Sky Zone with a church group and you can say, hey, you should come along for five bucks. You're never going to beat Sky Zone for five bucks, first of all. But we've got an Easter egg hunt coming up, and I would encourage you then too. This is a low barrier of entry, and it's a way in which we're trying to engage our community and our neighbors, and I would want to pull you into this as well. We have other events throughout the year, including and especially in the fall, we're going to do a fall festival. If we're going to have an infectious faith, a faith that is indeed attractive, and is, is something that uh, lights up a room, well, I do think it's important that we utilize that and that we invite people, that we call people not just into the church. This isn't just about church growth, right? In fact, I would say that's ancillary. This is about giving people a truth and a life and a light that they want they need. In a minute, we're going to take communion. And the act of communion itself is is a remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. It's a remembrance of just how much Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you And he demonstrates this by going to the cross. It's remembering that Jesus serves you by pouring himself out for you. This is the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. It's remembering Jesus' forgiveness for you. It's remembering that Jesus wants to be with you that he has made a way to the Father through his death and resurrection. It is remembering that Jesus offers hope. These are all the things that make Jesus incredibly attractive. So to ask one more time, if, if you were the Jesus that people knew, would they be a follower of Jesus? Do you have that kind of attractive faith Do you love others as Jesus loves you? Do you serve others, pouring yourself out for them? Do you forgive others as Jesus has forgiven you? Do you want to be with others as Jesus has made a way for you to be with him? And do you offer hope to others as Jesus is offering to you right now? I don't know about you, but I would certainly be attracted to that kind of faith. Let us pray together. Jesus, open our hearts right now. Open us up and remove all of those bits and pieces that have come in there over time that distract us, God, that pull us away from you, that keep us from giving our very selves to you, that hold you 
at a distance. God, break down those barriers right now. Because God, we are coming to the table this morning and we are being reminded of just what lengths you are willing to go because you love us. God, as we prepare our hearts to take uh, the communion table, we ask you to forgive us our sins. We do not want to come in an unworthy manner, but a worthy manner. And so God, it is important in this moment that we do some soul searching and we find those things that are keeping us from you and we confess them and we rid ourselves of them and that you cleanse us with your broken body and your poured out blood and that we find ourselves whole and new again. Lord, I, I pray for this church, for South Run Baptist Church. I pray that this morning as we, we take communion and, and we indeed remind ourselves of the lengths that you're willing to go, God, that this be a transformative kind of faith, one that transforms us from the inside out, one that makes us an attractive people who point to you at every chance, who point to you, whose good works point to your glory, whose good works point to uh, the work of Jesus on the cross. God, this morning we come with just a few words on our lips. And that is we love you. And we thank you. And we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.